0: Welcome to the Season 3 of the India Energy R podcast. The India Energy R podcast explores the most pressing hurdles and promising opportunities of India's energy transition through an in-depth discussion on policies, financial markets, social movements and science. The podcast is hosted by energy transition researcher and author Dr. Sandeep Pai and senior energy and climate journalist Shreya Jay The show is produced by multimedia journalist Tejas Dayananda Sagar and is presented by 101 Reporters, a pan-India network of grassroots reporters that produces original stories from the rural India. Climate tech is one of the emerging areas in the technology landscape, offering a variety of new-age solutions for adapting to changing climate. Largely unexplored, climate tech has the potential to empower even the grassroots sectors with the ability to forecast and adapt to extreme weather and unprecedented climate events. In this unique episode, we talked with Himanshu Gupta, the co-founder of Climate AI, who explained the various facets of climate tech, the emerging AI tools and how he is deploying it in the sectors he operates. From agri to commodity supply chain, Gupta talked about the various tech solutions that AI can offer for safeguarding against climate risk.
1: Welcome to the India Energy Hour, Himanshu. Very delighted, very excited to have you here. Uh, before this, we were discussing how long we have known each other. It's been 13 years. I think we both... At least I was in my first job then. And we just happened to, you know, cross paths in the lanes of Planning Commission, which is now known as Niti IO. Mm-hmm. So the organization we met does not exist anymore, but still. Uh, and since then, uh, you have crossed the, you know, boundaries of Indian bureaucracy, gone to academics, became an entrepreneur. So very happy to see your journey and the work that you're doing in the climate tech space, uh, something that remains so much unexplored. So great to have you here and thank you so much for being with us.
2: And of course, uh, Shreya, thanks for inviting me uh, to the podcast. Uh, I've heard great things about the podcast and also to your point, uh, we we started our uh, careers almost together in climate tech uh, 13 14 years ago and i used to call it like uh, we were all both like uh, kids uh, back then uh, from a career standpoint and uh, good to be uh, connected uh, and and to see each other's career evolve but also uh, how the climate tech as a sector has also evolved in the last 10 to 15 years
1: Definitely, and and I think the best way to explain this uh, growth in this sector is through your own journey. Uh, you have had a very interesting journey. You're from some of the premier institutes in India and also in the states. Uh, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? I think our listeners would love to listen about how a boy from Vrindavan went on to start a climate tech startup in the United States.
2: Yes, and and the reason I say boy from Vrindavan is, as uh, is- your listeners would know. Uh, grew up in a very conservative household um, and uh, in a very conservative town where uh, even now I, am still sure like uh, selling eggs and 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 is banned right. You can't sell eggs um, in the town uh, for obvious reasons.
3: Um, but the reason I
2: wanted to mention Brindavan is it's it's a it's a primarily a, a a religious tourism-based economy. And I did not know what uh, California was till I was 20 years of age, right? And the first flight that I took in my life was at the age of 20 when I was coming to the United States for my internship. Um, And this was like a 3 leg flight Um, and and was very nervous. Uh, Look, I was more nervous taking that flight than I was nervous uh, starting my career in climate tech. Um, so, that's, that's why that background makes a lot of sense, but also defines what I am, because uh, growing in a lower middle class household uh, back in India, and uh, you know, my father uh, did not go beyond high school, uh, but uh, as I say, like my father and grandfather, uh, they instilled values uh, in, in their children, uh, which I think is more important than any other degree that you might get, uh, either from India or from abroad. And those values of around like, uh, uh, discipline values of, of, uh, 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 passion for what you do and, and, and values for, uh, mentorship, right. Uh, where you know that they, they knew that they wouldn't be able to help their kids, uh, from a mentorship standpoint, uh, in education. Um, but they always instill that you find mentors in your life who can help you, Uh grow well in your careers and 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 that's why i think uh in my view uh values uh are those values that were instilled in me and and my of course my siblings as well uh are responsible are primarily responsible for uh whatever success i had contributions i've made uh to the climate tech sector and so talking about mentorship over the last uh, uh 10 to 15 years um i've had opportunity to make incredible mentors uh, starting with uh, my first job uh, out of um, IIT Kharagpur, um, and I called myself uh, a recession baby. Uh, um, so, so are like uh, uh, sure, like a million millions of uh, students who were graduating back in 2008 and nine call themselves. Um, and 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 my first job after that was in in a French nuclear energy company called Ariba, uh where. You know, I was responsible for making smart get products uh, all the way from like soldering wires, chips, coding, um, and 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 to like eventually selling those products uh, as well in the Indian market. And the smart kits as a concept was very new back then. Um, so from there, uh, I can go deeper uh, in in the later of the conversation. But then from there, I I moved to Planning Commission, uh, started. Uh, uh, working with uh, Anil Jain, who also appeared on your podcast, uh, I think a few episodes ago. And in the process, I got in touch with uh, uh, Montex and Galualia. We worked together on, along with Jain, Anil Jain on Indian Security Scenarios 2047 project. Um, and going back to the to the concept of mentors, uh, in the process, I built great mentors from in the, in the form of Anil Jain, Montex and Galuwalia And then... Uh, Moving to London, uh, where I briefly worked with uh, Lord Nicholas Stern uh, from, you know, while India was focused on energy and climate policies, uh, which are India and 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 Asia specific. But then I moved to to London, where I started focusing a lot more globally uh, on some of the projects that I was working with Lord Nicholas Stern. On again, uh, going back to like all while he was my boss, he eventually became my mentor uh, as well. And then now uh, starting. Uh, climate AI was six years ago uh, uh, where Lord Nicholas Stern was very instrumental in pushing me uh, into starting uh, something of my own when I was a Stanford. Um, so if I look at my journey, well, I can go into specific parts of my journey, but two or three day- takeaways which I have is was like I talked about mentorship. So I always make it a point to, you know, when I'm moving into a new sector, when I'm moving into starting something of my new or uh, my own uh, or new initiatives, uh, I I looked on as mentors and give me right advice. Uh, number one, and making mentors uh, takes patience, takes hard work. Number one. Number two is the passion. Uh, I've always uh, I've never been attracted by the herd mentality, uh, and so to say. Uh, when I was graduating from IIT, the herd mentality was to start your careers in investment banking uh, in Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, just like a lot of IITians too. Uh, but I never wanted to do that I was always passionate about uh, energy and electrical engineering uh, as a child uh, and I'm lucky to have still uh, been able to pursue that passion even till now uh, and it's the second third second part and third part is uh, which sort of d- defines my journey is that is that I always tend to make my goals in a ten year uh, interval right uh, so if I, back in, when I started working in planning commission, I did not know anything about policy. I did not know anything about economics, finance, but I had to contribute and eventually like uh, help my bosses and my mentors uh, make decisions. Um, but even then, I had I had in mind that uh, learning about a sector, uh, contributing, and then eventually making a difference takes time. And that time is 10 years for me. And that's how I measure my life. And fortunately for me, that has worked. Um, so I uh, started in engineering, reached the highest forms of engineering, started in policy, reached the highest form of policy by working with uh, Vice President Al Gore in climate, uh, you know, in his private office. Uh, and, and that's, again, my job in uh, role in, in climate AI when I launched this company uh, where we are creating a new category called climate adaptation tech. which doesn't exist. But I also know that that creating that category takes... A lot of time, lot of patience, lot of hard work, and I've given myself ten years to do to do so.
3: That's fantastic. I just have a quick follow up. Like, how was your transition from? I guess you're not you have not left tech. You're still doing tech. But like, how was your transition from tech to policy and then tech? Do you still do any policy work? Um, and like, it's always. I have also found. I have also switched a thousand times my fields. Uh, I find the switching quite complex and challenging in the beginning, but then you kind of start to enjoy. I mean, climate itself is an interdisciplinary topic. So having the lens of both technology policy, social side, it's good. So I'm just curious about the switch and the challenges and how you manage that.
2: Yeah. So to your point, Sandeep, yes, it's not easy um, to make the switch. However, uh, in, in my experience, what engineering and tech taught me is to think logically uh, about anything. And, and, and to me, policy is yet another like, a logical outcome of the steps that any country takes. Uh, that however, that however I mean, I'd be uh, misleading your listeners if I say it was easy. I remember when I uh, started my job at Planning Commission, uh, a lot of those terms were pretty new to me. Right, uh, even like uh, feed in tariffs, uh, as something like that, or uh, with come to think of it, I'm, I was an engineer. Uh, I could talk about chips and and, and C plus um, plus and and wireless communications. Uh, I could not talk about uh, GDP and 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 its impact like low carbon policy and and yada yada yada. So I still remember those days. Planning commission office would start at eight thirty or nine in the morning. I would be there at seven in the morning. From 7 to 8.30, I would be just watching a lot of YouTube videos, learning. I'd be watching uh, lectures from MIT um, from 7 to 8.30 about uh, uh, like one subject, let's say solar and solar policy, what's happening in solar and how do you understand solar policy First, from first principles, right? Um, so that's how I would start. And then and I was a very curious person. I'm still a very curious person. Uh, in a lot of meetings, which I would have inside Planning Commission, I would ask questions. I was not afraid to ask stupid questions. And that's also like uh, an important thing. The moment you think about just asking smart questions, then you are inhibiting your learning quite a bit. Um, so, so that was the second principle I had, uh, which allowed me to learn very quickly about policymaking. And third, of course, being immersed. Uh, they say like, if you are, um, if you have to learn swimming, the best way is to like, someone were to push you into a swimming pool and to figure out how to swim. And that was my experience uh, working in policy in, in planning commission where I had to contribute policy memos. The good thing was, again, what I brought to the table to planning commission was my deep understanding of the technology world. Uh, like, how much time does it take to build a technology? How much time does it take to deploy the technology at scale? What are the challenges that come up? Um, and, and how do you the indust- How does the industry respond to it? Like, I remember smartest. It was a very new term to a lot of people uh, uh, and I remember the questions that used to be asked to me like okay so what is a smart grid is it like a so are you are you saying that our grids are not smart right so um, those are the questions that used to be posed to me and, and not to uh, not to make fun of those questions I think those was genuine questions. Um, so it's, uh, it's it's basically I brought that's what I brought to the table and to the planning to planning Commission. Um, and kudos to my mentors who actually uh, were very patient with the questions I would ask them about policy terms and so on and so forth and they will take out time to explain to me and this entire uh, so we both fed off each other uh, where I learned a lot about policy and and my bosses uh, learned a lot about technology uh, from me so it was a great match
3: Um,
2: In that spirit
3: let's let's try to understand what is climate tech. Let's get into the weeds of the topic a bit. Uh, so start from first principles. I like the word first principles" that you use. Start from first principles. What is climate tech? I'm sure it has gone through its own journey and evolution of like what it used to be many years ago when probably the... like it, It's the same in every field. Like it, The fields evolve, the terms evolve. So if you can also narrate how it has um, kind of moved that journey, and what are the latest climate tech uh, you know like technologies that one can think of in the in the current scheme of things
2: yeah it's a as you said sandeep it's a uh, it's a very complicated term and there are so many definitions of that term uh, that have come up in the last four uh, to five years uh, as sectors evolving uh, and that's this is my definition the way I think about climate tech is Uh, technologies like climate tech so climate and tech uh, so technologies that can help uh, us mitigate uh, the the, the greenhouse gas emissions uh, that are causing climate change Uh, that's one part and then there are technologies that can help us adapt to the impacts of climate change that's the other part but that's one definition um, of climate tech Uh, there are multiple other definitions of climate tech depending upon whose lens you're looking at from. So if you're looking at it from a VC lens, uh, their mitigation tech and adaptation tech is not as popular. Uh, They're looking at it from like a technology lens, right? So is it a SaaS technology? Is it a platform technology? Is it an an e-commerce platform or what, right? Uh, That's a VC lens. Uh, Then another lens to that is Within, within, like uh, carbon, like are you are you mitigating, ca- like are you monitoring carbon uh, in the atmosphere? Are you reducing carbon in the atmosphere, uh, or are you uh, basically uh, substituting carbon uh, uh, in the atmosphere uh, through the technologies that industry uses? That's another definition. So I, and and, the, uh, and then there's another definition which I've heard. Like again, think about te- thinking about technology and policy is, is it hard tech versus soft tech? Uh, software, right? so are we are you are you working on uh, hardware technologies that can help you uh, either reduce carbon or uh, adapt to the impacts of climate change? Are you working on software technologies that can help us do the same thing, right? So there are multiple definitions to me. Uh, as an entrepreneur, my as an entrepreneur, the first principle for me is always the problem. What is the problem you are solving? Uh, and in this case, the problem that we are solving for climate AI is, how do we help the world adapt to the impacts of climate change? Uh, so that is also the definition I like personally, which is mitigation and adaptation. Uh, it, it keeps us close to the problem at hand rather than the other way around, where you are thinking about the technology first and then finding problems that were, where technology could be applied.
1: Right, great. Uh, thanks for the definition. Uh, I wanted to prod you a little bit and you know understand. Uh, why climate tech, you know, uh, taking an entrepreneurial jump is one thing, but choosing this particular segment is another, you know, it's challenging in the fact that it has not been explored much, uh, at least to the extent that one would imagine that it is a scalable or not, like there are not enough examples on that front. Uh, so why choose that? Because then it makes your jump double challenging.
2: Yes, uh, absolutely. Shre. It's a great question. Yeah. Um... And what makes it even triple challenging is is the fact that I went from the government sector, uh, after, after having spent four or five years there, to starting something in in, in Silicon Valley, uh, right away. And I can talk about that challenge later on. Uh, but to your point, why climate tech, right? If you're, if it's, I think it's it goes back to uh, my roots in planning commission. Uh, there were a couple of trends that I saw there. Um, one was, if you remember. Uh, we were working on this India Energy Security Scenarios project for 2047, uh, which is how does India become energy independent uh, within 100 years of India's independence, right? And working on that project, so I was the lead modeler there, um, gave me a lot of high-level understanding of each and every sector in India, all the way from agriculture uh, to energy to uh, buildings, um, telecom. And, and so on so forth, on well, the demand side and supply side of, of climate change. And, and what are the key challenges coming up, and what would it take for India to move to uh, complete energy independence um, by 2047? And as part of that, of course, one of the pathways that we came up with was uh, the low-carbon pathway for India. Uh, and we, we used to call emissions as a byproduct of uh, of an energy-independent pathway, right, for for multiple reasons that I can go into later on. So that was one. So I, I had a very I got a chance to look at these sectors and the problems at a very high level um, uh, into and not just like high level, but also uh, from a quantifiable, quantifiable high level. Right. Um, so if India is growing. At, if India has to grow at 7 percent or 7.4 percent every year, how will these sectors grow? What do we need to do to in order to uh, ensure uh, a very smooth uh, energy transition? And the second part. Uh, was because of my background as a, as a technologist uh, i always i was i was always very good at like uh, um going deep into a specific problem uh, and that's what like the training as an engineer uh, uh, makes you and so i remember those smart grid products like great it's great to understand the potential of smart grids onto the india's energy sector uh, but it's all also great to like Dig deeper, double down and like and and sorry, zoom zoom in onto specific technologies that can create an impact. And what would it take for us to develop, uh, deploy, and scale those technologies? Uh, So having those two perspectives, which is zoomed in perspective on a specific technology and zoomed out perspective uh, from a policy lens, uh, allowed me to understand the problems that are going to come up in every sector. And one common lowest common lowest common denominator was was client. And if you remember, like, uh, I, I don't know, some of your listeners who have played with India Energy Security Scenarios project, there's a mystery, uh, uh, there's a mystery uh, switch there, which I don't think, I don't know what many people know about. Uh, and this was back in 2013 and 2014. What I did was I created another scenario of what if uh, India's average temperature in India as compared to 1850s increased by two degrees, four degrees, or six degrees, Right. Uh, and I use this. I just I just created that tool as uh, a s- small switch. Not that it was initially part of the agreed upon project. I just did that, uh, and the results actually shocked me as well. As to if India's temperature increases by two degrees, uh, what will be the impact on the energy demand for buildings, as we all know, like the uh, air conditioning demand goes up. Uh, what will be the impact on agriculture and the energy consumption there? And that to me was a big number. So I knew always that the, there's a Big problem coming up, and and some of you will also remember uh, back then we used to have discussion in planning commission around farmer suicides happening in um, in the west of India, especially with cotton farmers. Uh, so every for those of you who don't know, uh, for some of your listeners who don't know, like uh, every alternate year, uh, if there were a drought in the west of India and cotton cotton crops being very water guzzling crops, um, and and most of the cotton farming in India is still rain fed. Uh, uh, is based on rain fed irrigation, many of those farmers will start committing suicides. Uh, and this was a big topic of discussion back in 2012 and 2013. I don't know now, but it used to be a big. So, so there was a humanitarian cost of climate change that we were seeing. Uh, and then there was, the, of course, the economic cost of climate change from the tool that I built. So I knew it's a big problem coming up. The question is, do we have the technology to solve this problem? And, and that's where, uh, at Stanford University, I found my co-founder. Uh, we came up with a technology breakthrough that gave us the confidence that this be, some of these problems could be solved, especially on the adaptation side of climate change. And climate AI got launched. But to your point, uh, Shreya, yes, the transition was was not easy. Transition was was far from smooth. Uh, I think it's it was even more challenging in, uh, than my transition from technology to to policy. Uh, for back from policy to entrepreneurship, this was one of the most challenging transitions of my life.
3: Fantastic, uh, thank you for explaining all that. Um, now let's talk a little bit 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 more big picture. I just want to understand the scale. Like, give throw some numbers if you have it ready. You know, like what is the scale of climate tech we're talking about? If you can provide both the global context, but India and US, like some key geographies. Like, what is the scale of climate tech investments happening, or you know, entrepreneurship, and what is the scale required? To meet one point five or two or, or Paris Agreement, for example, is there any quantification of any of that?
2: Yeah. So um, uh, again, there are two ways of quantifying it. Um, one is of course uh, the policymakers' way, and the second is the entrepreneur's way, right? Uh, let's let's start with the policymakers' way of quantifying uh, the the opportunity uh, in climate tech. So currently, our emissions like we are pumping 36 gigatons to 37 gigatons of uh, emissions into the atmosphere, um, and everyone knows that for for each and every country, like globally, we have to achieve net zero either by 2060, 2070, 2100. Uh, that could be it, but this has to be done, a, you know, annually. So let's say in the next five years, uh, these emissions keep on increasing to 42 gigatons. We need to uh, reduce and sequester 42 gigatons of carbon from the atmosphere. Now, at a very conservative price of $40 per ton, uh, basically you can do the math. Uh, we are looking at close to 1.6 trillion dollars, if I'm not wrong. So, 40 gig 42 gigatons multiplied by $40 per ton, uh, that's close to yeah, 16, 1.6 trillion dollars of annually of investment that needs to happen, right? Of value that needs to be created. A very back of the envelope way of like understanding uh, the amount required. The second is around. Uh, this is on the mitigation side, the, on the adaptation side. To your points, and the uh, even at one point one degrees and one point five degrees, even if we are able to limit global warming to one point five degrees, uh, we are already seeing the impacts of climate change. We are seeing right with uh, you know the summers breaking records in Europe, um, you know in the U.S. Uh, and in India as well uh, with heat waves in March. Um, so we need technologies and investments to adapt to those impacts too. Uh, and, that too, uh, and that, again, is a $1.2 trillion uh, um, opportunity. And again, it's a back of the end of calculation and from a policymaker's view, because every year there's $1.2 trillion of losses happening of su- in supply chains because of extreme weather. Right? So if you basically want to reduce those losses but also create more value, uh, this is the minimum you basically, uh, an opportunity that exists now, the opportunity could be even higher in adaptation. Right? So that's, you can, you can think about the scale. Um, of, of uh, opportunity that exists in the sector. And I think there'll be at least a uh, hundred unicorns that would be created over the next 30 years to, to basically deliver on this opportunity uh, that exists. Now from an entrepreneur standpoint, we, we, we like to look at things from a very um, bottom up view. Uh, and so if we solve a specific problem, um, what is the value of that specific problem to be solved for a specific customer? Or a client, um, and and how much of that value in an entrepreneur is able to capture, right? Um, so, for example, like uh, for the climate AI, we have seen that if uh, out of those, you know, let's say we are solving, a, uh, we are helping food uh, food companies uh, both monitor as well as reduce the impacts of climate change on their food supply chains, uh, and we have seen that with based on the existing contracts that we have with food companies globally and we multiply them with uh, the number of food companies and agriculture companies we can work with. Uh, and then you further scale that to the number of um, energy companies, manufacturing companies that are going to have similar problems or already having similar problems. We look at this as a $93 billion opportunity, market opportunity for climate AI alone uh, in helping companies adapt to climate change. That's a very entrepreneurial view, of like which is bottom-up based on number of contracts, number of customers. Um, uh, but then there's a top-down view too.
1: I also wanted to understand, you know, from a company perspective, what is the scale of your operations? If if I were to understand, uh, you know, how many people on the back end do you have? How many people do you have on the field? Uh, how does a typical company uh, functioning in climate AI uh, operates? Okay, Sandeep also has an addition to it.
3: And uh, just, just, just a supplementary question. Let's go back to the first principles. What is climate AI? Like, what do you guys do? And then let's get into Shreya's question, just briefly, so that people have context.
2: Yeah. Uh, So I'll start with the jargons first, and then I'll explain the jargon. Um, um, So we are an AI-based climate adaptation platform for currently working with food and agriculture supply chains. Uh, So what that means is, first, we, we use AI to predict risk of heat waves, wildfires, droughts, hurricanes at any global location from two weeks out to 20 years out. That's that's one. The second part is we translate those risks into specific insights uh, for food and agriculture companies, right? So as an example, how would a heat wave impact the yields of almonds or potatoes uh, or nutrition and quality of uh, uh, almonds, potatoes at global locations. And the third part is we call it the adaptation playbook. What can companies do to reduce those risks um, uh, as well? And this and this could be anywhere from like uh, uh, moving to new locations which are coming up for growing specific crops to climate change. This could also be working with existing farmers on making them more resilient to climate change uh, or, or launching new seed varieties in some markets and so on and so forth. So and that's the adaptation playbook as we call it and in this process uh, as companies deploy these adaptation playbook that leads to both uh, them becoming more resilient uh, their farmers becoming more resilient but also creates a big market opportunity for them so we call it like the business case for climate adaptation where if every 1 dollar you invest in climate adaptation leads to basically anywhere from 10 dollars to 15 dollars return on investment in 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 uh, near to midterm for the companies that we work with. So right now we work with close to uh, 45 global brands in food and agriculture. Uh, and of course, there are some in manufacturing too. Uh, so all the way from um, ITC and other and Tebila Group and UPL in India uh, to uh, Suntory in Japan, which is their largest uh, um, beer and, and and beverage brand. Uh, to uh, many European companies like BASFs and of the world, to a lot of American companies where we started. So if you were to open your refrigerator in the U.S., uh, you're based in North Carolina, indeed. So most of the brands that you see, uh, either we are working with them or in the pipeline, like Ocean Spray, Dole, Driscolls, and so on and so forth. But the platform is global, right? Of course, um, most of these companies have global supply chains. Um, So we work with them on, on their global footprints. Uh, It's just been five and a half years. There are 74 of us in the company with three offices, Mexico, uh, San Francisco, and a small office in New York.
1: You work in a sector which is uh, very much driven by how you connect with the communities that are involved there. Or or is your association with the corporates, and they are the ones who take this forward, uh, is there a... Is there a business case, or is there a business section in your company in which you, you know, uh, communicate directly with, say, the farming community or the commodity com- communities? Because they are hard to move uh, sectors. Uh, so, h- what is your engagement like?
2: Yeah, great question. So, we when we started Climate AI, uh, we were always uh, we call ourselves a mission-driven company, right? And not just like it's a cute. Uh, one slider on an investor's deck. Uh, It's a mission-driven company. Uh, We consciously made a choice that we are never going to work with upstream oil and gas companies uh, and help them become more resilient. And we are stuck by that uh, principle. Even now, it's been five and a half years since we have done this company. Uh, That's one. Two is our mission was um, to basically climate-proof global supply chains by improving lives and livelihoods. And In almost all of the use cases that we can discuss, you'll see there's a direct and indirect impact on lives and livelihoods uh, of people in the supply chain uh, for these companies. Uh, So there's never been like any conflict, like okay, are we only going to work with corporations, and what will happen to the farmers? Now, in food and agriculture supply chains, of course, uh, the most vulnerable communities in those supply chains are farmers. uh, For that matter, and we as a business, we 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 made a choice that a if you want to if we, if our end outcome is to scale our impact uh, the best way to do so is work with the ecosystem around farmers uh, and not with farmers uh, number one um, because typically as you said uh, Shreya farmers are you know are uh, they basically know a lot more about their crops than we do to be honest uh, they've been burned with uh, so many startups uh, in Silicon Valley coming and promising moon to them. Um, and, and and then disappearing all the time um, so there's a, theres a basically a lot of skepticism that exists among farmers for the right reasons um, and, and and I'm not even talking about smaller smaller farmers in India or, or Latin America um, which basically don't even have any capacity to pay as well right uh, uh, and they are so much busy in their day-to-day lives forget like they, they don't even have time uh, to basically adopt a new technology um, uh, for that matter so, uh, we we said like we work with ecosystem around farmers, which is food companies, um, uh, seed companies, fertilizer companies, uh, processors and packers. Uh, not only we can create impact with the food companies, we can scale our technologies with the farmers as well. So let's say a, a typical food company will be working with close to uh, 10,000 to 100,000 farmers globally. Um, and, and because their agronomists have trust uh, with the farmers. Uh, what happens is in the first uh, two years, these food te- uh, companies are testing our technologies uh, internally. Uh, and, and if they see value in it, then they say like, okay, now we can deploy these technologies with, uh, with the farmers uh, as well now, because vetted and coming from them. So it helps us get scale and break that barrier of trust uh, with the farmers too. So that's our, now we are basically, uh, so as I said, we work with 40 to 45 food companies out of those, at least five of them have deployed our platform with the farmers they work with too. And it creates a win-win scenario for them, for both of them, where uh, if farmers use those technologies, they become more resilient. At the same time, food companies get more reliability in their supply chains uh, if farmers become resilient. Uh, so that's one. The, another example of that would be, uh, it's a big problem in the U.S., uh, which is, uh, the, we call it like rebuilding your houses uh, after hurricanes. Uh, right, and typically what happens is uh, after a hurricane has struck, people's roofs are blown, blown off, and um, uh, like the way it happened in in Florida last year due to hurricane Ian. Um, and so suddenly the demand for building materials spikes up, right? So you' have seen like you will see like or you would have seen videos, YouTube videos of queues of people lining up outside the retailers. Uh, but uh, and, and, and going back empty-handed because there's no material left. It Could be the material could be roofing shingles, could be cement, uh, could be mats, right? Uh, so we had this company that come to us and said, like, hey, uh, can we use your platform to help optimize our sales inventory across uh, those multiple regions in the U.S. Uh, based on the hurricane risk? So if let's say there's a high risk of hurricane impact in Florida, so can we have more inventory to in, in Florida? Two three months up, uh, and if that happens, then not only that that uh, that building materials company gets more revenues uh, because of it, but also they help their customer, which are pretty typically house owners, rebuild faster uh, as well. Uh, if they have enough material at the right place. So that is also like doing Hurricane again. Ian, uh, you know, we help this company generate fifteen million dollars in revenue, additional revenue in one season alone. At the same time. Uh, for, uh, they didn't have any cues outside outside of the retailers because there wasn't a material available for everyone, right? So, this is the pattern of the use case that we have um, across all the companies that we work with. It, there is a direct and a very tangible uh, direct or indirect impact on the communities.
3: Right. So, I mean, Himanshu, uh, this is again a very maybe a very basic question. Um, like the most important contribution that Camet AI is making here is predicting the changing climate, right? Between two weeks and uh, like 20, as you said, I think. Uh, and because of that predictive power, companies, organizations, the ecosystem is able to, you know, put, I mean, gather their resources to use it efficiently. Is that is that a correct understanding of climate AI or uh, maybe there's something else?
2: Yes, absolutely. So... Predicting the changing climate, but also predicting its impact on specific uh, crops, commodities, um, or assets as well. Because, as, as an example, um, you know almonds and, and pistachios are two close cousins of each other. Well, almonds are, as a crop, are very sensitive to drought risk. Uh, pistachios are not. However, pistachios are very sensitive to heat risk in the winters, while almonds are not. Right. So it's also important, important to understand But companies know, want to understand, like, hey, this is great, you can predict there's a heat wave coming, but what do we do about that? Why, why should we care? And that is the answer, which is, I think, more important than actually predicting, like, why should you care? Um, one, one example I would uh, uh, like to give there is, like, during COVID, right, uh, when, uh, when the, uh, the virus was, when, when the pandemic was declared, what is the most urgent thing the world was waiting for? Vaccines, right? Um, the, and I tend to draw a similar analogy in climate change as well, right? Climate change is impacting food systems and water systems globally, um, right? And we have seen escalating geopolitical tensions as well. Like last year, India had to ban um, wheat exports. Um, uh, you know, for from an, as an Indian, I think for the right reasons, but as a global citizen, I think they were things would have been better, right? So if, if climate change is impacting food systems and water systems, the vaccines, uh, you know, uh, in this case would be your climate resilient seeds for farmers, right? And, and, and typically, um, this is our, in fact, this has been our most uh, uh, inspiring use case that inspires all of us, even to me even now, which is how do we help seed companies launch climate resilient seeds faster to the market? Uh, and to the to the farmers, uh, and one example of that is, and 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 before I go into the example, and that to me presents a really big opportunity for individual countries, uh, including India, to become let's say a food manufacturing hub or seed manufacturing hub. Uh, one peculiar example of that is uh, we, uh, as you all know, like if some all of you are aware of the Tomatino festival in Spain, right? Uh, Spain grows a lot of tomatoes. Period. Uh, but because of water issues, it's become more and more difficult to grow tomatoes in Spain. Um, and what, uh, and then of course, Spain is getting hot too, right? So a lot of seed companies, and to me, it was baffling. Many seed companies pr- producing tomato seeds for farmers in India, they would, they would produce those seeds in Spain and export them all the way to India, right? And now they are seeing uh, those impacts because like one year they are falling short, uh, of their seed production, one year they are like two hundred percent seed production. So they, so they, they want to work with us on where else can they grow tomato seeds, uh, and 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 how and and how can they launch those seeds faster? Because a lot of farmers in in, in India are suffering, right? I mean, they they, they can't produce heat tolerant uh, tomato varieties for farmers in India. Then of course, uh, you know, there are both. Economic as well as humanitarian challenges, as we discussed in the podcast earlier. Um, so, a typical process of launching a seed takes ten to fifteen years in the market, very similar to launching a vaccine or a drug trial uh, or a drug. And in the ten to fifteen years, two to three years is basically about uh, conducting, like figuring out locations and conducting trials where, and coming to a conclusion that these are the locations where where we should actually be start you know, uh, setting up our research centers and 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 think about uh, producing these seeds. So uh, the way it happens today, is these seed companies are sending teams of four to five people globally. Uh, and those people are setting up camps quite literally, uh, collecting a lot of soil data, water data, uh, weather data, reporting it back to the headquarters. And then they decide that um, after two or three years, that this is a location where actually could be a new growing location for tomato seed. Uh, a, uh, already two or three years have passed. B, uh, each of those uh, camps or like those teams consume half a million dollars uh, to do so. And see, even then, this analysis is based on historical data because by the time they launched uh, tomato seeds into the market, climate would have changed already or new pest pressure would have come up. So now with that platform, they can just draw a circle on this, like let's say on Spain, they, uh, on 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 a map for Spain. And this is where they are growing, let's say, uh, and saying that, hey, this is where we are growing tomato seeds in Spain, the platform will automatically, uh, basically figure out in the history, what led to high production of tomato seeds in Spain, what climate conditions, water conditions, and soil conditions, will roll the clock forward 10 to 12, 20 years, uh, and then pattern match uh, using machine learning, what all areas are coming up uh, for doing so, for growing that particular seed, right? Now, in this case, we told this company, like, why are you like producing in, in Spain for India when you can produce in India for India? And, and they are actually acting on that. So they are going to make uh, $50 to $100 million of investments uh, in, in seed markets in India. If you were to zoom out, uh, so this is all happening because of science, right? Um, and more, more and more so after the war, uh, where food supply chain and seed supply chain have been disrupted. I think it's a big opportunity for India to sort of say like, okay, look at all the uh, food supply chains. For what all foods or crops, India can become a seed manufacturing hub. And it'll be a better, to to, to, to us, it'll be a better a livelihood opportunity for, for farmers than growing crops. And the reason being because seeds are a high value item versus crops. Uh, so farmers can get paid a lot more for growing the same amount of crops for seed production than for crop production. Uh, and, and so that's that's like, we, we call this like, uh, uh, for countries like India, a really big market opportunity coming up due to adaptation. But also this this use case inspires us and allows us to hire the best AI scientists globally because we're actually creating change um, and, and for farmers as well as the food system. The same platform that I talked about was in Time Magazine's best invention list for last year, along with OpenAI. Uh, and this platform has been deployed across 60 countries, 30 plus crops, uh, and has created an impact for close to uh, two point three million farmers.
3: So, hey, Manchu, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a it's a it's like a le- different c- kind of. I mean, you use the same technology, but you create different platforms based on uh, the the use case or the users' need. Um, but one question I do have, and I mean this this probably speaks to the power of AI and remote sensing and like all the machine learning stuff. But do you have geologists on the ground? And I mean, this is probably a basic question. Uh, do you like? I'm, I'm just getting into the methodology. I mean, do you only use like the satellites and stuff? But or you send your geologists and both kind of complement, or is it uh, all the tech stuff? Maybe this is a basic question, but it's out of curiosity.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're 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 onto something, K S Um uh, geologists, in case of agriculture, are, are known by the name of agronomist, right? Well, geologists are very good at like uh, just conducting a lot of research on on rocks and figuring out their chemistry, um, agronomists are very good at like figuring out right. the chemistry. I meant agronomists, I mean geologists in mining
3: mode, but I yeah. meant
2: the same. Yeah. No, I understand. Yeah. Um, so. So we have uh, three PhD agronomists on staff. Now, to your point, we don't send them um, to multiple geographies uh, and on the ground. And the reason being, A, because we uh, we don't need, for our work, uh, we don't need to give like, you know, a, a, a centimeter or meter by meter predictions. Right? Um, we are giving predictions for a specific region. The region could be, let's say, a 25 kilometer, or 25 kilometer. At that resolution, uh, a lot of those soil maps are available globally, right? Uh, Which we can tap into. Like from there are databases from Food and Agriculture Organization that are available that we can tap into. So we have over the last six years, we've collected a lot of that data. Uh, Number one. Number two is um, we work with a lot of food companies who have their agronomists on the ground, right? And they are like very like there are agronomists which are focused on I don't know Maharashtra, and there are agronomists which are focused on Gujarat. Right. And they have assembled know-how and expertise for the last 20, 30 years. Uh, and it's, it's a very valuable expertise and know-how, uh, which AI can learn from. So when, so basically what happens is if our AI is generating some insights and prediction, we can test it with those agronomists, with those food companies. Like, Hey, is this aligned with what you have seen over the last 10, 20 years in your region? And more often than not, the answer is yes. Uh, and this is where our value comes, where these agronomists say, like, okay, it took us all these years to figure this out, where this AI can can do that in, like, minutes. So it's not replacing them. It's actually, like, making their jobs a lot easier, where an agronomist, like, even focused on Maharashtra, can focus, like, from a 20-kilometer, 20-kilometer resolution standpoint, can focus on the problematic areas of Maharashtra, rather than, like, uh, you know, acting uh, blindly.
1: the whole business as a whole. Uh, how much interesting has this business been for investors? Uh, according to your website, you have a stellar list of investors, uh, including uh, Robert Downey Jr. himself, which is one of the celebrity investors in your company. But apart from that, how has your experience been in the, in the investment community? How do they perceive, first of all, climate tech? How challenging or you know easy, difficult was it for you, to raise funds for a company such as yourself? Uh, give us an overview on that front.
2: Yeah, I. Um, this is also the most sensitive nerve that I have uh, and you touched upon that, Shreya. So when we were launching Climate AI um, out of Stanford University, and we started pitching Climate AI to some of the Silicon Valley investors, and this I'm talking about the end of 2017 and early 2018s, the response that we would get was, "Are we running a nonprofit, right?" Um, and uh, no one actually thought that that people would be willing to pay for it. And and, there, and for in the VC world, climate tech was a very new term, right? Uh, to to an extent that if you remember, in 2019, I wrote uh, my own blog on on, on climate tech. Uh, it was the first I think it was the first ever blog on how do you define climate tech and and and, 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 and how do you, can you separate that from an adaptation tech, mitigation tech, and just to educate VCs. So we have done a lot of education among VCs uh, in globally, most so in Silicon Valley, among why climate tech is a big opportunity for you. So uh, in early 2018, uh, basically like we had a hard time fundraising uh, to an extent that I remember the first person that we hired, first engineer, both me and my co-founder Max, uh, we, we, one night we were, we, you know, after the dinner, uh, we were talking to each other, like, great. We have this one engineer who's accepted our job offer and we are going to pay him $7,000 per month. Great. But then we have no funding. Uh, and, and we said like, how much do you have in your savings account? How much do I have in my savings account? We said like, both of us had jointly $15,000 in the savings account, our own savings account. Right. And doing an MBA is a very, is a very expensive proposition anyway. Um, uh, So we basically like uh, both of us. Kudos to my co-founder as well. Were like pretty risk-taking. Um, we had just fifteen thousand dollars in a savings account. We agreed to pay seven thousand dollars to an engineer per month. Uh, based on that, um, but then what happened is a lot of our professors from Stanford trusted us. They trusted us, uh, believed in us, not because of the technology or not because of uh, the sector they believed in us because of us, right? As students, like students who have, they had seen perform really well in the class. Uh, and, and they knew that whatever we would do, uh, we would, we'd become good entrepreneurs. Right. It doesn't matter what sector and, and what company we do. So that's how we got our first angel financing, uh, from a professor Stanford. Otherwise it was very difficult time to raise financing, uh, in Silicon Valley. Uh, and then after that, like, see how much a sector has evolved. Um, Last December, uh, like we all know, it's, it's not a good time to fundraise uh, for entrepreneurs globally and, and not just in climate tech, like in any sector, except for if you are in Gen AI. Uh, it, it's not wasn't a good time. So I was preparing for uh, to leave for my holidays. Uh, my wife and I had planned to go to Italy. Uh, was last December. Uh, I received a call uh, two weeks before that from an investor uh, who actually knew all two of our board members that, hey, we have conducted diligence on you guys. Uh, We have talked to some of your customers already uh, and we have been tracking you. We want to preempt your Series B. Uh, So some of those, for for your listeners who don't know preempt, what does preemption mean? Preemption means when when a VC fund comes along and says that we don't want you to go out to the market and raise uh, because we really like the sector, we really like the technology, we really like the company. uh, and, And here's a term sheet for that. So it's 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 a win-win for both the parties because uh, fundraising takes a lot of time out of an entrepreneur's life, a time which could be basically well spent on building the business. And so before leaving uh, on 24th of December for uh, for our holidays, I had to I was signing a term sheet. Like you so see how the sector has evolved in this four four and a half years from actually you know uh, getting the feedback that hey are you running a nonprofit uh, to an investor coming along and saying like we don't want you to raise in the market and here's our term sheet. And sign it. Uh, So it's been it's been great to see uh, how how the sector has evolved. And and now uh, I also do some angel investing myself. Uh, I've invested uh, in a few um, uh, climate tech companies as well
1: that's great uh, you know uh, globally uh, and even in india as well the vc universe has been open to such ideas and and that and that, that that's great uh, are you looking at the private equity investors as well would you like to get some investors on board or your model as a company uh, you would do not want to i'm asking this because i want to understand what are variety of investors interested in a company such as climate ai yeah
2: so one is, uh, as an entrepreneur, it's very important to have a clear conviction uh, and a clear long-term conviction in a business in climate tech. Uh, while I, I can't emphasize the importance of this statement, uh, we are not like any climate tech entrepreneur, whether you're doing a carbon uh, in, in carbon or you're running like a battery company, uh, you need to have a 10-year view. you need to ensure that your investors Aligned with that ten-year view because you're not creating a Monday.com, you're not creating a Slack, you're not creating Twitter in here, right? Which is going to see that exponential, exploding growth in user base uh, within months. Um, so, and, and 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 which sort of is a good segue into your your question, Shreya, like uh, the various categories of investors, right? Typically, private equity investors uh, are useful when uh, you know the business has hit. 10 to $20 million revenue mark, you have a very predictable sales motion. You're, you know, close to 100 to 200 customers. And now you feel like the value could be created by introducing more efficiency and processes in the business because startups are very, are very much chaos, right? Um, So if, if an entrepreneur thinks that a lot of value could be created by introducing a lot of like discipline processes uh, and running your company like sort of big companies, um, one and then two is once you have, done that, then private equity capital can help you like just scale that, right? Um, then only private equity makes sense. Uh, otherwise, as an entrepreneur, you are in for like a really hard time in terms of relationship with, with yourself and your investors. And the reason be because investors typically want to see returns on a 30% annual basis, right? Uh, on a more consistent basis, uh, but climate sector is still evolving. A lot of those playbooks, like what has to be the right product uh, for a specific variety of company uh, is also evolving, right? So for example, in food sector, we have seen uh, uh, like food companies, even they are the most impacted by climate change. It, they're still coming to terms with the amount of money they want to spend on climate tech, right? And and that takes some time. Uh, similarly, like uh, uh, food companies will pay very differently from manufacturing companies. The manufacturing company will pay very differently from data center companies. Uh, as well. So, um, if you don't have a long-term view, which is 10 to 15 years, imagine like PTM in India, it's, a, it's the best example of that. Um, since, uh, they, they've been in operations, and correct me if I'm wrong, since 2006 and 2007, uh, on digital payments, right? No one cared about it. Uh, but growth was very slow, uh, until demonetization, right? Uh, a flip of, you know, a switch happens. A flip of switch happened, like, in a moment. And they're still on exploding growth. Uh, I think as an entrepreneur, you need to have a similar view in climate tech. That yes, we'll our job is, is to evangelize the market, keep on educating the customers, like companies, uh, and and have that long, you know, long-term growth view. And there will be one inflection point when the companies will be like every company on this planet earth would want our technology. All right? And depending upon which specific technology you are developing in climate tech that inflection point either uh, is already there or might be five years away or six years away. So it's very important to align your investors and your board or whoever, whichever new investor you are trying to get on board uh, with that philosophy. Otherwise, uh, good luck running your company with 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 board with very different expectations uh, than what an entrepreneur would have.
3: Himanshu, um, I just want to zoom out a bit and kind of ask a meta-level question. I mean, uh, one thing is that in general, and correct me if I'm wrong, but climate finance and climate work is very mitigation focused because a lot of people can see, I mean, whether it's deployment or solar, can see some returns, right? Was it a challenge to get into adaptation space because, uh, and and to create and show value for the customers? I mean, you know, if there is money, then, you know, the others will come in. Uh, Did you face any of those challenges or it was very clear the product that you you were selling or like the value proposition was clear? So it didn't matter whether you were in the adaptation space versus mitigation
2: space. Absolutely. I think that's a good question, Sandeep. Um, And the reason I say it's a good question, because my work used to be in mitigation space uh, in planning commission. Uh, even when I worked with Lord Nicholas Stern, was all about uh, creating low-carbon pathways for cities, for countries, for various sectors. Um, I remember a time when I pitched this idea to the CEO of uh, uh, Elston. Uh, I used to know him really well in Paris, and this was back in 2014. I said, like, hey, whatever I've done for India and in multiple countries, I can do the same for your company as well, figuring out where, uh, you know, sort of uh, giving you a carbon picture of various processes and 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 factories that you have in in your company and how would you get to like uh the reduced emissions and and his answer was like uh i know you're going to stanford for start your mba uh i would rather have you do that than start this company right um and i don't fault him because it wasn't a very new thing right no one actually said like why should i care Uh, um, but then of course the flip. You know the the flip of or inflection point moment for mitigation sector was the Paris uh, Agreement, right? And suddenly it became to these companies that hey, if you, uh, for what were consumer uh, reputation reasons or rep- reputation reasons, regulatory reasons, or uh, uh, you know for consumer reasons which are millennials, right? Uh, they they want to see us care about our carbon footprint, and that started a new wave, right? And, um, of of them investing money uh, and. On, on climate technologies. And we see like an explosion of growth of these carbon mitigation platforms as you talked about, Sandeep. However, um, the problem there is like, it's driven by regulatory concerns. It's driven by reputation concerns, right? So there's not like an immediate ROI that the companies are seeing there. So you can get to those $30,000, $40,000 contract very easily. Uh, but then Billion-dollar companies or unicorns are not made on $30,000, $40,000 contract. There has to be someone willing to pay you half a billion dollars, a million dollars, for the same technology to scale it, right? And that has not happened because historically, you companies cannot pay more than that for a technology which is just helping them uh, uh, meet regulatory requirements or reputation requirements. And that brings us to adaptation. Uh, we started food and agriculture. In our case, the problem was already there, Right? In mitigation, the problem was was basically defined by Paris, right? Hey, companies need to define their net zero. So it was artificially created for the right reasons, that right? we need to do that. In adaptation, the problem was already by happening in Mother Nature, right? Uh, where if you, I don't know if you remember, but uh, uh, last, last year there was this Pacific Northwest heat dome event uh, where temperatures in Vancouver, where you did your PhD, uh, crossed 52 degrees Celsius. Uh, and the entire time was like basically a, 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 you know, we call it like a cook store, it's like a cook store, right? In the middle of a cook store. Uh, so in three days alone, if you are a food company, water company, energy company, uh, or even like a data center, uh, you lost uh, $9 billion just in three days if you have operations in the Pacific Northwest. So in our case, the problem was always there. Uh, the challenge for us is, was to tell the companies that, A, this problem could be solved like uh through technology b this problem is urgent enough like because that's my that's my problem with the narratives in climate change these days uh the narratives you know we think of scenarios by 2050 2060 2070 and it gives us a false sense of cushion like okay i don't need to worry like if a typical ceo uh, of a public company is there for the four years or five years right uh, so their uh, you know performance is not measured for the next 2050 or 2060 time frames um, so, once we told them that with, with our work that uh, your supply chains, your operations are getting impacted right now, and doesn't matter whether it's 1.5 degrees, 2 degrees, 4 degrees, uh, these these impacts uh, are more than what you've seen in history and are also going, only going to increase in the next five years, not even the next 13, 20 years. And that to us, so that education paid off. When CEOs saw that, okay, this is something you need to add right now on. Uh, And B, there's a market opportunity as well, which is, if we act on this, it leads to a lot of return in ROI, but also we can be the market winners um, uh, uh, in terms of the opportunities presented by climate adaptation. And that is the inflection point for us, which we think is coming this year and next year, uh, where you see like World Economic Forum is also going to make adaptation as a priority agenda for next year.
1: As we are on this uh, topic, I want to push a little further and ask, uh, you know, the the current projects that you have uh, seem to focus a lot on, you know, developed countries, if I may say so. How much of acceptance for climate tech solutions, climate tech models would be, say, in least developed countries or developing nations, which would be in the first line of impact, you know, from climate change and and are not that prosperous enough to look for instant solutions, urgent solutions, as you mentioned, and and to prepare in advance. Uh, And it would lead a huge amount of investment into their infrastructure, into their planning, not only just at corporate level, but at government and policy level as well. Uh, What as a businessman, as as someone who offers climate solutions, what do you think of this uh, catch twenty two situation?
2: So, um, as I mentioned, like our platform is global, um, and uh, and the companies that we work with also have global footprints and global supply chains, right? So, for example, we are working with uh, a company by the name of uh, MGK. They're based in Tanzania. Uh, and, and that's where they're growing uh, their crops. Uh, but then the parent company, uh, Sumitomo Chemicals is a Japanese company with global footprints, basically. Um, um, so, indirectly, we're already working with with uh, in, in developing countries and least developed countries uh, uh, for that matter. Um, however, of course, the affordability is a big question, right? Now, if you work, when we work with global companies, even if we deploy technologies and platform in developing countries affordability is never a question right they can they can pay for it um, but however to your point um, affordability becomes a challenge when you start working with the partners who cannot pay as much uh, for, for those solutions right um, and so this has been uh, always been on top of our mind and so as an example this year we have started uh, discussions with african development bank on how can we partner with them um, on the Feed Africa campaigns that they're in, right? I mean, after after the war, uh, most of the food supply chains uh, have been disrupted. Like I'm talking about Russia-Ukraine war. Um, and many of the smallholder farmers in Africa uh, were dependent on the seed supply chain coming from Ukraine. And that has been disrupted. So, and then many of these African member states uh, we're also dependent on imports of wheat uh, and canola and, and some of those uh, vegetable oil crops from Russia and Ukraine. Uh, so there's suddenly a question of food security. Uh, there's suddenly a question of livelihood security. Farmers cannot get access to seeds. How will they grow? Uh, so all these member states have come up with their uh, uh, feed Africa or like food security uh, initiatives, and and we think that our platform can help uh, quite a bit in helping them figure out what crops can you grow locally. Uh, and then what crops, um, uh, and how can you monitor and optimize the yield of those crops as well uh, every year. Uh, But then we are hoping that the funding will come from African Development Bank, but the platform will be deployed uh, with the farmers without with no cost for them. Similar stuff uh, we have in Latin America too. Um, And uh, last year, I think when I met... uh, 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 Mr. Raman in, in, in DC, uh, in Washington and she was here. We he talked about a similar model. Like how can we work with Ministry of Agriculture in India? Uh and 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 where uh some of that funding could come from uh, from World banks and the likes, uh or from local uh, mind you, like India has uh, basically is is I don't think is, so India is is uh is between now developing countries and developed countries now. So India doesn't need uh, any help from any other country. Uh or development agencies is like pulling together the right resources and deploying it. And to an extent, that some of the engineers that we that worked with us, uh, they left jobs with you uh, know million dollar, like quite literally half a million to a million dollar annual paying jobs with Google and Facebook to work with us uh, for impact reasons. Uh, and if if need be, let's say um, if uh, Prime Minister's Office in India or wherever were to tell us that hey, for farmers in these are the right uh, FPOs, we call them um, in India. In cotton, that uh, your technologies could be very helpful. We don't mind deploying, giving that technology for like free uh, as well uh, to those farmers, if need be. But again, our the, the, uh, one caveat is uh, there has to be someone uh, responsible for deploying um, as well as monitoring the use of the technology, right? Uh typically otherwise what happens if you quit thing for free, then it's for free, right? And no one cares about like whether it's being used and how it's being used and training the farmers and so on and so forth. But otherwise we don't mind doing this for free. But uh, by the way, we are already working with three companies in India, like ITC and uh UPL, uh as well as uh, uh other group That's great. Uh
1: it, it, it was it, thank you for covering all all aspects of it uh, uh, i think we covered almost everything that could have uh, we possibly could have thought of uh, from on your end i wanted to ask you know from your uh, conversing with you as i understand is that you have a decade type planning like you plan for 10 years what is your plan after 2030 then uh, when climate ai is like 10 years old uh, <laughs> what is your plan
2: so Weird question. So this could be—it's uh, open uh, right now. Um, as I said, like uh, there would be at least hundred unicorns that will be created in climate tech, right? Um, so maybe I might start something new in climate tech uh, post that. But this time the transition would be as painful as it was uh, when I started climate AI, right? There's so much of funding already available. I'll have—I'll be a second time founder, and statistics say that second time founders are more likely to create unicorns than first time founders. Uh, that's one route. The second route uh, could also be um, I have this deep desire to come back to India um, in this time in a policymaker role. And because cl- I, I think that uh, uh, climate is going to be, has, there has to be a separate ministry on climate. And not just because it's, it's a big concern for India, but also I think it's a big opportunity for India to go out and, and, you know, and, and, and basically uh, be more aggressive uh, in, in the climate negotiations. Uh, right, and uh, and it's also a big economic opportunity for India as well. So uh, if if there is and no one can predict what will happen in the next eight to ten years, but uh, if there are some right channels, I might want to come back to India as well in in the policy making role, especially after my exposure globally, uh, uh, and I think I could contribute a lot uh, to India. And third, which is again the only thing is of course I am married, uh, so it's not easy. Like I was living in my suitcases. Uh, until 2017 when I got married, like So if you tell like hey, there's a new opportunity coming up in in Spain I just like pack my bags and go to Spain, now it's not possible, right? Um, so we'll also have to see like how that dynamics plays out. but my wife is also an entrepreneur. Uh, she's she's doing a lot of work in fintech, uh, fintech. Uh, so we'll see how that pans out and, um, and if not anything, you know we I might decide to uh, move in a global climate role. Uh, either with un or somewhere else but so options are still we're uh, very much open uh and where we see let's see where life takes us but as you said i i like to plan my life for 10 10 years time
1: yeah and amen to all of that uh, may what all you plan comes true so and thank you so much for talking with us uh first of all best of our wishes to the entrepreneur couple and thank you again for talking with us uh this was uh you would not believe one of the first episode where we delved so deeply into climate tech and uh, you did it so beautifully thanks again uh for coming here and talking you know unfiltered and giving us you know you gave an overview in such a simple language so thanks again for it
3: yeah i also wanted to jump in here and and thank thank you himanshu for sharing you know your perspective on tech policy entrepreneurship this dance is very important to save the climate crisis and i think you are one of those polymaths who have dabbled in every space so you can speak speak from the pains and the Eyes of every space. So I really appreciate your time as well.
2: Of course, and, and thanks for having me here, and and uh, and great questions. I I hope uh, your listeners benefit. I know, like uh, uh, there is a burgeoning climate tech climate tech community in India, um, uh, and uh, happy to be uh, of help uh, with my experiences. Uh, it's been pretty intense <laughs> the last four years. But I hope uh, uh, so. in Whatever way I could help, uh, but also like you're running a great program, both of you. Uh, so um, and of course, uh, as I said, uh, Shreya and I started. We were kids in 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 our uh, you know our career in climate tech. So it's good to see each of our paths uh, evolve uh, in 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 similar and yet different ways.
1: And that cross again, thanks to this podcast.
2: Thanks to this podcast. Thank
3: you.
1: Thank you for listening to The
0: India Energy R. Subscribe to this channel to never miss an update. To drop us a feedback, visit our website or write to us at TheIndiaEnergyHour at gmail.com We are on Twitter. You can follow at TIEH underscore podcast and get in touch with the two hosts at Shreya underscore J and at Sandeep with a double I.